Wait, Marcus, what's your what's your deal? Uh, you're not. <laughs> what's using, your deal, Marcus? <laughs> you're not using your your standard setup. It is. I have this microphone, the same device that you will notice that podcasters everywhere use, even those yeah, investing fucking, in true crime. Fucking podcasters. All right. <laughs> we'll get to that. Of, yeah, we'll get to that. And do I have the right mood setting for Halloween? Colin has the best mood setting because Colin, all I need to see <laughs> is behind your left shoulder in that darkened hallway there, a white mask slowly emerge. That would. <laughs> I thought about it about two hours ago. I was like, "Fuck! I really wish I had." A Michael Myers mask, so that when I turn on my my video, you'd like freak out. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Real DMC podcast. DMC stands for Dave, Marks, and Colin. We're all here. Happy Halloween, guys! How you doing? Happy Halloween! It's still two weeks away. Okay, well, we're faking it because <laughs> we might end up releasing this oh. close to Halloween. Happy Halloween. All right. So uh, before we get rolling, uh, we'd like to get your feedback. So if you want to uh, shoot us a message at feedback at realdmc.com, or you can find us at Twitter uh, at realdmc. And uh, we actually did receive some feedback. So uh, we got a message from a Jacqueline Burton, who actually wrote in to say, (laughs) quote, I'm not sure why you guys are asking for people to say Colin sucks. He's no worse than Dave or Marcus. So just wanted to say thank you for that feedback and keep it coming. Is Jacqueline Burton actually Bill Tiller? I figure it's somebody who knows that I have a a big love of the film Big Trouble in Little China. So I'm assuming it's one of our friends out there. But you know what? That's okay. Thanks, Jacqueline. Well, today we're going to try something a little different. So we're going to do this as a two-part podcast. We are? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody told me. Well... (laughs) Oh, man, I only prepared for part one. Actually, hey, guys, I want to let you know, we're, we're going to do this as two parts. Are you cool with that? It's not in my contract. Uh, I need to consult the union manual. So we all recently had a chance to see Halloween Kills. That was an interesting catalyst for us to go back and actually take a look at the first Halloween and kind of what is the new Halloween trilogy. That what we do over the course of the next two podcasts is we talk about both films We are going to reference Halloween Kills a little bit as we go through the podcast today, but we are going to keep it spoiler-free. For the 2018 version of Halloween, we are going to go into it in depth. So if you haven't seen that, we are planning to spoil it left and right. And up and down. And up and down. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then what we'll do is we'll come back and we'll do a more detailed review and run-through of the actual Halloween Kills film and give you some feedback there. Before we actually jump into it, just you guys want to throw any just real quick spoiler-free thoughts about Halloween Kills? Michael Myers kills someone. Oh, God, I spoiled it. <laughs> kills lots of people. 2018 is better than uh, Halloween Kills is my quick view. Different slant. Less scary, more like kind of slasher movie. My re- quick review. Colin? Yeah, I think maybe someone was um, doing some cocaine in the writer's room when they started <laughs> doing Halloween Kills. They went a little off rails. Or they were watching a Friday the 13th marathon and said, hey, we should do something like that. Yeah. It seems very odd that it's the same crew. Very, very different movies. It goes in a whole new direction. Yeah, that's what I think is interesting about the two films next to each other is they seem really tonally different. And they're, they're very, very different films. And I, I would say the 2018 Halloween definitely is trying to, you know, kind of be more of a traditional sort of Halloween film, if you will, in terms of how Michael Myers is handled. Uh, Halloween Kills, totally different approach your Friday the 13th analogy is pretty apropos because I see Halloween 2018 being a really good direct sequel to 1978. Yeah. And then this one is more like 
Michael Myers becomes Jason. Michael Myers becomes John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's not spoil it. <laughs> that gave it all away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just Marcus, you just you just ruined the plot because what happens is somebody runs over or someone kills Michael Myers' dog and steals his car, and he gets really pissed off. <laughs> Goes on a rampage. Actually, that doesn't happen. Glad you clarified that. What was that? <laughs> Glad you clarified that. Okay, thanks. All right. Well, today let's start with a deeper dive on David Gordon Green's first horror film, 2018's Halloween. Testing one, two, three. We're on. We're here to investigate a patient that killed three innocent teenagers on Halloween in 1978. He was shot by his own psychiatrist and taken into custody that night. And spent the last 40 years in captivity. Hello, Michael. I have something you might like to see. Everyone in my family, like, turns into a nutcase this time of year. Yeah, I mean, your grandmother is Lori Strode. She was almost murdered. Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No, it was not her brother. That's something that people made up. Do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? What the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. The bus crashed. Mom, what bus crashed? Michael escaped. He's waited for this night. He's waited for me. I've waited for him. Get out! Go home! Get inside! Man. He's here! Michael! You should. The 2018 version of Halloween was made for a budget of $10 million, and it was a massive financial success. So it uh, made about $159 million in the U.S. domestic box office and about $255 million globally. And it actually became the highest grossing Halloween film in the franchise on the very first weekend it was released. So there was definitely yes. a lot of pent up demand, a lot of interest in coming back to see these characters. The fact that Jamie Lee Curtis came back and that John Carpenter was more directly involved, I think were definitely selling points. And they were certainly used as part of the, the marketing drumbeat up to the release of the film. They've gone off the rails a bit on some of the previous sequels. Yeah. And so this was kind of the back to back to basics and back to like, okay, let's try and like scale it back down and make a really good scary movie versus like a lot of the other ones were just milking the franchise. Jamie Lee Curtis had been in several of the the other sequels. Three of the other sequels. H2O. What was the one thing that made you interested in seeing this film? It just looked better. I think the previews and all this stuff I saw when it was coming out, it just looked a lot scarier, more realistic, and a lot less goofy. Dave? Yeah, my interest was actually that the people that were attached to it from a production standpoint, you know, David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, they definitely spoke a certain amount of reverence for the original film and the source material, and they promised that this film would be a return to to the original feel of the film Halloween. And we'll go through some of the, the franchise history in a second, but, you know, some of the sequels went completely batshit crazy off the rails and we're, we're bringing in all this druidic nonsense and all this kind of stuff. And so 
the idea that they would just wipe all that away and go back to Myers as being this mysterious killing force and stalking and all that. It was definitely something that I was excited to see. How about you? I didn't watch a lot of the Halloween sequels after Halloween 2 or Halloween 3. The one thing that piqued my interest was Blumhouse. Yeah. If there's anyone who could inject some interest into this franchise, it would be them. And so I was. Uh, that was the, the thing that made me go, okay, I'm interested. I think I might actually watch this. Yeah, Blumhouse has actually been responsible for quite a lot of pretty interesting horror films. Definitely a name that I pay attention to. I heard Jason Blum actually on the Bill Simmons podcast when this was coming out. He was talking about the film saying, we're making a, a really good horror movie. We're not just... You know, we're not just milking the franchise. We're just going to want to really do it right. So I, I do remember him uh, talking about it before. Yeah, I'll have to say the entire franchise is kind of interesting because this is the 11th film in the franchise. And it's kind of crazy to think that what was an independent film that was made for, I want to say it was like $450,000. I'd have to go back and look at it, but it was pretty cheap. And half of that budget went to actually the, uh, the lenses they were using for the cameras. And at the time, it was the most successful independent film ever made. The idea that it was going to be something that would, would spawn, you know, 11 movies and 40 years of sequels is kind of crazy. It was certainly not what Carpenter intended when he made the original film. And that sort of leads into the weirdness of Halloween 3. Just to kind of run through the franchise at a very high level, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it, it's the only horror movie franchise I can think of that reinvents the timeline literally six times over the course of the film series. The first Halloween that comes out in 1978... That movie ends with Michael Myers disappearing and you hear his breathing. And He's somewhere out there. That's all Carpenter thought about at the time. It was originally a script that was converted to a Halloween-themed movie from what was a kind of a, a suspense thriller called the, the Babysitter Murders. So I just watched this Netflix documentary on the making of Halloween, which is really, really good, I have to say. It's it's 45 minutes long. Really quite good. If you have not watched it, watch it. Drop some knowledge. Erwin Yablins, the producer. Right. The that He said he was never called the Babysitter Murders. Halloween, well, what's going to make the interest all year round more just than just this one time this movie comes out? Oh, do it like a, at a day of the year. Halloween. Boom. There you go. Which is also part of the formula that Friday the 13th copied by naming that movie Friday the 13th, which I thought was really quite interesting. Well, completely. And then Friday the 13th, their other tactic was to ramp the gore way up, right? So what you have is you have this movie is released in 78. Friday the 13th comes along in, I think, 1980. And then when 1981 comes along and they decide to make a sequel to the original Halloween, they asked John Carpenter to write the script. And this is where he kind of randomly threw in the Michael Myers is Laurie's brother, which even in this movie gets debunked at one point. You know, Carpenter was thinking, okay, it's two and done, and and that's it. For him, he actually talks about the fact that he did it just for the money when he created Halloween 2 originally. Yeah, he did not direct that, right? No, no. So Rick Rosenthal directed Halloween 2. People have referred to it as the Rosenthal cut. I don't know that it's ever been released. I'd have to research that, but... (laughs) Um, <laughs> Marcus, all these stupid cuts. <laughs> <laughs> Release the Rosenthal cut. Uh, <laughs> they screened it, and because Friday the 13th was focusing on the violence more intensively, then they brought John Carpenter back in, and he punched up the film by shooting a lot of the gore scenes. There were actually two different versions of uh, Halloween. So there was what Rosenthal shot, and then what Carpenter came back and changed. So you're saying that Carpenter came back and he ramped up the gore? Yeah, he did on Halloween 2. 
Halloween too. Not not the first Halloween. Well, that's really strange because in Halloween there there was no gore, there was no blood. Right. Yeah. Very little. Why wasn't Rosenthal doing that? Or is it that Rosenthal was trying to be true to Carpenter? And then they're like, no, 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 we got to compete with these other movies. Yeah. Well, no, that's exactly what it was because Rosenthal was trying to make a definitely something that was stylistically and thematically very much in line with the original Halloween because those two films back to back, kind of like this, uh, the the movie we're mostly going to be talking about today, and then Halloween Kills. The idea that those two films occur on the same night, the first original Halloween and the original Halloween 2 sequel, same thing. It's a direct continuation. Wow. So now I am sort of interested in that Rosenthal cut. I would like to see. I mean, is there <laughs> is there such a cut? I mean, can you see That's it? That's a good question, actually. I don't know if there is. Well, somebody call Rick Rosenthal. <laughs> Someone send us a message at feedback <laughs> at realdmc.com. Let us know if, if there is a Rosenthal cut out there. Michael dies at the end of the first Halloween 2. Then they made Halloween 3. By the way, I actually have a soft spot in my heart for Halloween 3. It's a bad shit crazy movie about a guy that's using pieces of Stonehenge to melt children's brains and make uh, spiders and snakes come out of their mouth. So it's it's a very interesting movie. It's worth watching if you've never seen it, but it has nothing to do with Michael Myers. Your description of it being batshit crazy, yeah. I think, is dead on. Right. It is an interesting movie. They shot it up in Humboldt County. It is so, so, so different. So not Halloween. So why but, is it like credited part of the franchise? Well, like, I don't... because they wanted to do, he and uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, they wanted to like create an anthology series about the night of Halloween and it would have all uh... different storylines and characters. They would not have like Michael Myers was sort of like a one-off. And so like Halloween yeah. would have started that. Presumably Halloween too would have been a completely different story, but they chose to to do a sequel I think it's really interesting. Now, knowing that, now I really understand it, why they did that. Yeah. I guess the producers chose not to continue on with that. With Part of the problem was that they did not inform the movie-going community or set expectations appropriately. And so what happened was people were expecting <laughs> yeah. Michael Myers to show up and they all went to see the next Halloween movie. The only time you see Michael Myers in that film is because they are actually screening the movie Halloween. I know, right? You see the movie Halloween actually being on, the, it's on the TV set. That was kind of funny. Yeah, weird. Yeah, and weird. then so from there, then they said, okay, well, we need the we need to get the cash back. So then with Halloween 4, they actually reintroduced Michael Myers. And Marcus, you probably don't even remember this, but we used to work in a movie theater, and Marcus knows that Halloween freaks me out. And so uh, he had actually put together a film, and he put the Halloween 4 trailer on there. And then we went to see the movie that he had put together, and we were sitting next to each other. And when the Halloween trailer came on, you like grabbed my shoulder really quick. <laughs> so Because <laughs> I didn't know the trailer was going to be there. So that was kind of fun. And then they made a fifth and a sixth movie, and those were... The sixth movie is another one that's just it's way, way out there. It does have Paul Rudd in it, which, which is kind of funny. Paul Rudd is kind of this insane performance. Um, he's, it's very, very strange. He actually plays Tommy Doyle. What's interesting, by the way, is that Paul Rudd wanted to come back to play Tommy Doyle in Halloween Kills. He actually wanted to do it, but he couldn't do to scheduling conflicts. Otherwise, he was planning to. The problem is he, he still looks the same. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I must have missed out on the, the curse of Michael Myers because I love Paul Rudd and that would be like really, really interesting to see. I would have loved to have seen him in Halloween Kills, but I'm sort of thinking now that maybe the scheduling conflict was a good thing. I think for the role, I think Anthony Michael Hall did a better job than Paul Rudd. Like what they were asked to do, Anthony Michael Hall did a much better job. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I can't see Paul Rudd having the same crowd rallying energy. Now, should it be what he should be asking him to do or not? That's all. 
topic for yes we will cover that on the next podcast (laughs) there are some questionable or some interesting decisions that are made in the halloween kills film just to round out the series progression so after part six they said this weird druidic michael myers nonsense doesn't make any sense so let's go back and we'll do halloween h2o and i think this is when they had kevin williamson so who had written the scream screenplay so he i think did the the screenplay for halloween and it was halloween 20 so it's called halloween h2o or Halloween Water, as it's more commonly known. <laughs> and it's a really yeah, dumb title. This, there's, yeah, I really mean, bad. Halloween Kills, by the way, is a really stupid title, I think. It, what does it mean? Halloween is killing something? I mean, it's just a... It's, uh, it's, a, it's a dumb yeah. title. H2O was... I also thought, thought it was released in 2000. No, it's 1998. <laughs> It'd be Halloween H2K. So what was funny about that, too, is they brought Jamie Lee Curtis back to play the role. And initially, they told her that the opportunity was to actually kill Michael Myers permanently, which she does in the movie. Spoiler alert, she uh, chops off his head with an axe at the end. It looks pretty permanent. But what she either didn't know or I think she came to know over the course of filming was that she was contractually or they were contractually obligated to find a way to keep Michael Myers alive because they wanted to keep making money off of him. So then she had to appear in Halloween Resurrection, which was the next film and is truly terrible. Okay, I'm intrigued. Yeah. How, how does he come um, back? How does he survive that? Okay, so we... Yeah, I haven't seen either of those yeah, so two. just really quickly, so uh, he gets his head chopped off. They retcon it so that apparently he uh, strangles a ambulance driver. This, it just makes no sense, right? Because he squeezes his vocal cords so he can't talk, and then he puts the mask on him, and then he sneaks out, and then Jamie Lee Curtis accidentally chops the head off of an ambulance attendant. Oh, that poor man. It's just stupid. It's, and, and Halloween Resurrection, by far, the worst movie in the entire series. At that point, it was kind of running out of gas, so they said, hey, let's, let's try something else. They brought in Rob Zombie to basically do a pure reboot. We do have a podcast dedicated to the Rob Zombie Halloween, which uh, for a while was one of our most popular podcasts. Uh, worth, worth checking out. And I'd say that the Rob Zombie Halloween is better than you would think, and especially compared to every other film in the series. It's my number three sequel. What's your number three sequel? I mean, no, it's my number two sequel. It's my number three film in the series. Yeah, well, maybe after the end of the second podcast, we can do our definitive ranking or have that conversation. So Zombie made a Halloween 2 that I was unable to finish. It was so bad and so bizarre. (laughs) Uh, At some point, I'll go back and maybe finish watching it just to see exactly what was going on there. But what was fun about that one is that Zombie was not necessarily constrained to focus on the original material, and so he got to take it in an entirely different direction, and apparently he did. Uh, I have not seen the whole thing. Um, and that brings us to this film. So so what's interesting about this is you have the 11th film in the franchise, and it basically just decides to ignore nine of the previous films completely. And it just goes back and is effectively made as a direct sequel to Carpenter's original 1978 film. Smart move. Yeah, just forget everything that happened in between and just do a straight sequel. And I think it works. Yeah, and it works really well that way. Yeah. yeah. Carpenter, part of the reason that he got involved in this was that he did not like the zombies version of Michael Myers and his backstory. So I think he felt like he really wanted to fix that and take him back to his original version, right? Wasn't Zombie trying to like, not even like humanize him to a certain degree? Like, yeah. Give him a backstory? Z- zombie wanted yeah. to tell the origin story of Michael Myers, like why someone becomes evil. Like that's what he was really interested yeah. In, yeah. in talking about. Well, so let me ask you this. Why, in your opinion, has this film or this franchise, I guess, you know, had, had the drawing power it has had for so long? I think Michael Myers is just a great villain. He's a monster. He doesn't, he, it's not too complicated. He just is a killing machine. He's pure evil, as they say many times. 
And he just comes out and like he's nonstop. He just will keep coming and coming and coming and attacking people. And it's not too over the top in anything that he's doing. It's not too gimmicky. It's so I think that kind of plays to people. You can kind of fill in what you want for what he is. Colin? He's a complete enigma. You don't know what's going on behind that mask. You don't even know what he looks like. Even in this movie, when he's without his mask, they blur his face. Right. You know, he's out of focus. Yeah. He doesn't talk. He doesn't tell you what his plans are. He is just this thing, this completely unknown thing. He is the boogeyman. Yeah. And yeah. and it's very effective. Yeah, and I think specifically it's because he's the boogeyman and it's how he acts in the first film, right? I mean, that's because it's extraordinarily suspenseful. Tension is high when you're watching that movie. The stalking part of it where you see him in the background and the visuals for that, and in particular, the mask. The mask is super effective, particularly in the original Halloween and and the original Halloween 2. They do a pretty good job replicating the mask, and they do a very interesting thing, which we won't, won't go deep into in Halloween Kills in terms of the mask. But the mask is what it's all about, and it's really interesting when you go through the entire series of films because... A couple of them, they're kind of close to getting the mask right, but a whole bunch of them, they're way off. Like, if you look at Halloween 4, for example, that's a pretty good movie, but the mask is goofy as shit. It's like this super white, smooth, you know, with brown hair. It doesn't really look menacing, but people know this, but it's the, it's, you know, it's the William Shatner's face basically spray-painted with the hair teased out. Like, that's the original Halloween mask. I can tell you exactly what they did. So they took the William Shatner mask, yeah. right? They cut the eye holes out bigger. They shaved off the eyebrows. And then they shaved off the sideburns and they spray painted the hair brown because it was more, more like sandy blonde. Yeah. They painted it white. They tested that against like another mask. I think it was a cl- like a clown mask. I forget what they call that particular clown. But anyway, <laughs> it's a famous looking clown. I forget the, the actual name. Was it the sad clown of life? Maybe. Bozo? Maybe. No, not Bozo. Um, <laughs> but this, everyone basically looked at that and went, fuck yeah. This is it. And there's something about this blank whiteness that is just, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? It's 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 enough to get you tongue-tied, whatever it is. Effective? It's disturbing. It's just, somehow, it's just quietly disturbing. It's, It's so featureless. All these things he's doing are like gruesome and terrible, but you never see any sort of reaction or muscles. He's not grimacing. He's not straining himself with his face and it just ends up being almost featureless, right? Exactly. There's no emotion whatsoever. Right. And it's not like it's yeah, exactly. some, like, super scary with like teeth and blood and yeah. there's no emotion on that mask at all. Plus all of it, like his killings are somewhat random. You just happen to be walking by at the wrong place at the wrong right. night and you're getting killed. That's what's so effective about the first Halloween is there's no motive, right? There, there There's no yeah. specific motive other than, this entity wants to kill. I think the other thing that does show up a lot in this movie and throughout the series, there are some physical mannerisms for Michael Myers that actually do a good job of defining this guy as a as the boogeyman. And very specifically, what Nick Castle was doing when he was the shape in the first one was he had his walk and his movements inspired by Westworld, Yul Brenner in Westworld, right? So he kind of modeled his movement in a very <laughs> robotic fashion. And when he, you know, when he sits up in that one point, behind Jamie and then sits up and then tilts his head that plus the scene where he sticks Bob to the wall in the original one. And he tilts his head. It's amazing how all it takes is a head tilt to define something that is like terrifying. And and it's something that gets used throughout the entire rest of the series. And apparently that was a moment where John Carpenter just told Nick Castle, 
hey, just kind of tilt your head a little bit and let's see what that looks like. So it wasn't necessarily something that was overplanned as far as I understand it. Yeah. They did so much with so little. Right. And, and that's why it totally works. Aside from Michael Myers, you know, the, the movie itself, the original Halloween, was just so filled with tension and suspense, tightly directed. It didn't need you know, blood or anything. Amazing, amazing music. This movie like really stands out. So it's like the sort of the combination of a really, really well-made thriller with this amazing character. That's why people are still watching this movie. People are still talking about this movie 40 years later. And every other sequel has just been trying to sort of recapture that. Yeah, the score itself is a huge piece of why Halloween is so effective. For me personally, the scene of Jamie Lee Curtis or Laurie walking across the street to the dark house with the slow building tension, that's probably the maybe the most tense I think I get watching a movie was watching that scene in terms of uh, the build up to it. And I can watch it right now and it's still effective on me. And I've seen the movie so many times. And Dave, why is that? Well, Colin, let me tell you a little bit about my youth. So uh, let, me, uh, <laughs> let me take you back to uh, October 30th, 1981, because that's I, I finally put this all together when I was researching this film. That was the first time that NBC was actually going to show Halloween on network television. I was a, a horror movie enthusiast. So at that time I was 10 and I was probably already reading Fangoria magazine. So um, shout out to Tom on that one. I was excited to watch it. And so I remember that, you know, I told my parents, you know, can I watch it? Can I watch it? I talked my mom into it. My dad probably just went to bed. And so I remember sitting down there watching the movie with all the lights off and at the age of 10, just getting pretty much scared shitless. <laughs> and then what I did soon afterwards, because the reason why NBC was showing it on October 30th was because Halloween 2 was coming out that same week. And so they, they were doing it as a promotional tie-in to the release of Halloween 2. And then so what I did with a friend after I saw Halloween was uh, we, we had a plan to sneak into Halloween 2. And I was walking with a friend and he chickened out and I went in by myself and I sat there and watched Halloween 2 by myself at the age of 10. <laughs> uh, so Wow. And uh, yeah, so that, that messed me up a little bit. Um, and to this day, you know, that movie is uh, it's the reason why during the month of October, when I'm taking the garbage cans out at night, I'm walking just a little bit faster. <laughs> or, or when I see, you know, orange uh, leaves blowing along the ground, I definitely have a moment of pause or, or think about Halloween. So it, it definitely has had a lasting impact on me. And I'll, let me just tell you, I'll give you two more quick stories. So I went to meet Marcus at his apartment in San Francisco. This was, you know, maybe 15 years ago. As I was waiting on his stoop, because he wasn't home yet, it was probably, it was a couple of days before Halloween, I guess, the fog had rolled into San Francisco. And as I'm sitting on Marcus's stoop, uh, he, had to, he had a market that was across the street. And this guy comes walking down the street, and he's doing the robotic walk perfectly. And he has <laughs> the full jumpsuit, and, he has the, and it's a really good mask. So he looks, he looks exactly like Myers in the original Halloween. And so I'm sitting there on Marcus's stoop, and I see this guy walking, and my heart starts thundering in my chest, right? I have to admit that, because <laughs> it's foggy out, it's dark. And the guy walks down to where the market is and then he stops and he turns his head robotically and he just stares in the window of the market and stands there perfectly still. And I waited for, I waited oh, wow. for like a minute and then I, I said, fuck this. And I ran back to my car and I texted Marcus and I said, let me know when you get to your apartment and I'll come meet you. <laughs> I was too freaked out, right? So that's, and then I'll just give you one last one. So Bill Tiller, who has one of the original masks, has threatened to come over to my house on Halloween. And so what I do every Halloween is, and I really do this, I put a bat by my door and I take a picture of the bat and then I text it to Bill Tiller and I say, if you come over and you actually show up on my doorstep, 
when this happens, <laughs> I'm going to take the bat to your head, and I, I cannot in any way, uh, I'm telling you right now, I will not be responsible for my actions. And so I'll just continue this. So I went to go see Halloween Kills earlier this week with Bill. When I went up to his house, I knocked on his door, and then I stood way back on his porch. And he, he came out the door. He's like, what the hell are you doing knocking on the door and then walking backwards? I'm like, well, I did not want you opening the door with that mask on your face. So <laughs> <laughs> That's my long way of saying that uh, this movie has had quite an impact on me personally. And, uh, but I do think that there's a difference between the original, which is a masterpiece, and then a whole bunch of the sequels, which decline in quality, I think, as you go. The current day Michael Myers is not scary like the 1978 Michael Myers. So that's, a, that's for the 2018 film. Was it effective at all, or is it not not really? I thought it was pretty effective. I mean, I think it's actually one of the better masks of the series, for sure. In fact, I think it's probably the closest to the original that you get. I actually think the zombie mask isn't bad either. I think that the zombie Myers mask is pretty good. Well, this one, they also they, they make it super dirty and gritty, like it's a 40-year-old mask that's been around. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, because the, uh, the mask integrity is pretty impressive after 40 years. <laughs> I want to know who's more fucked up, Laurie Strode or Dave? (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a coin flip. You don't have your compound yet, so. Speaking of Laurie Strode, you want to guess, want to hit the cast quickly? Uh, Yeah, let's Sure. (laughs) Yeah, so so Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously, uh, she is Laurie Strode. So coming back as the the first uh, Scream Queen, or uh, I guess what do you call the final girl. Um, I think she's really good here. I think she, you know, she's given a decent amount to do. And I think she projects the the damage that the incident has had on her pretty effectively i think she's just doing her best sarah connor in this movie there's a lot of sarah connor sarah connor's <laughs> going to come up as we talk about this for sure it's nice to see her again in one of these movies yeah, i think i think she's better in this than she is in halloween h2o i think i never saw that one at some point i was like i'm not watching these movies anymore they're just why don't worry don't worry i got you covered she does a great job showing almost realistic on how she would respond I can see. I think H2O, from what I read, was more about her trying to run away from it. And in this one, she's more facing the, like, standing up to it. H2O, she had moved, changed her name to, I think it was Lori Tate, and then moved across the country. She was living in California. And somehow yeah. Michael still found her. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this character of Lori Strode yeah. because here's someone who went through an extraordinarily traumatic experience. Right. And it yeah. fucked them up for the rest of their life. And now you yeah. can see 40 years later what this person's life is. And it's not good. Yeah, but she's also found like the strength to like, okay, I'm going to fight back. It consumed her in a vengeance way. Like, right, she's trying to prepare her life no, yeah, but that's for still this. Th- but she's also made herself stronger and she's made herself stand up to him. And Sure, but that's still no way to live. Cost, she, right? Like, she yeah, basically yeah, is cost. waiting 40 years to exact her vengeance. And that's her daughter's view, right? It does cover that, I thought, pretty well. I'm glad you got to see that. I never told you how I spent my childhood. I learned how to shoot a gun when I was eight. I learned how to fight. I had nightmares about the basement. Social services came when I was 12 years old and took me away. I've spent my entire life trying to get over the paranoia and neuroses that she has projected on me. Will Patton is as Officer Hawkins. Not a huge role in this film, and he has maybe a slightly expanded role in Halloween Kills, the sequel. 
Interesting thing there is they referenced that he was involved in the Myers capture. And so that comes up in this movie and that plays into Halloween Kills as well. Not a ton to do, but I, I like Will Patton as an actor. So I'm always happy to see him. Yeah, well, I was looking at Halloween 2 and the cast to see if there was Deputy Hawkins and I couldn't find him anywhere. Turns out it's because it's been retconned. Right. And they do show that now in Halloween Kills and what role he had back in 78. So that was good. And yeah, Will Patton's great. Just out of curiosity, what's your number one Will Patton movie when you think of Will Patton? Probably No Way Out. Me too. <laughs> but Ar- but Armageddon is the one that like, usually like pops into my mind. Yeah. yeah, but No Way Out, he's so good in that. Yeah, he's really good in that. Um, and then as far as other actors in the film, so they did specifically want to cast a relatively unknown actor for the role of Allison, Jamie Lee's granddaughter. And they were doing that to sort of replicate what they did with Halloween in terms of bringing in some unknown actors at the time. And you have James Jude Courtney, who plays The Shape. So he is doing the vast majority of the Michael Myers work. And I think he's doing the Michael Myers impression pretty good. I think the Myers movement, head tilts and all that, I think it's pretty effective. Yeah, I was convinced. Yeah, I thought it was good. When they have the shots of Michael without his mask in the, in the beginning, you only see the, like, the side of his face. Is that Nick Castle or is that somebody else? Or is that uh, Jude Courtney, is it? That's a good question, actually, because I thought Nick Castle just did The Shape when he was... He's up in the room and he's being reflected in the mirror and Laurie takes a shot at him. I think that is Nick Castle as the shape. I don't know who, who the unmasked version is. Um, by the way, one other quick note here. So because I, I listened to our zombie Halloween podcast and I kept saying Dick Warlock over and over again played the shape in Halloween. Of course, it was Nick Castle. Dick Warlock played the shape in Halloween, too. And there are scenes, for example, of him walking down the stairs where he had to memorize the number of stairs because he wanted to keep his head forward as opposed to looking down. And so if you go back and look at his work in Halloween 2, I think he is probably the, the second best, or, or even he's up there with uh, Nick Castle for the first Myers. Anybody else you guys want to highlight? Oh, yeah, Judy Greer. I love Judy Greer. She plays Lori's daughter, Karen. Yeah. I, I find it really interesting that she shows up in this movie because I usually see her in comedies. I'm a huge fan of hers, like from Arrested Development. She does a lot of voice acting, and she, she plays Cheryl Tunt on uh, Archer. Was that Tunt? Tunt. Okay. Yes. She's fantastic. <laughs> she is so, so awesome. So it's really kind of interesting to see her in uh, a horror movie. Anybody else in the cast you want to highlight? The girl who played Vicky was uh, Virginia Gardner. She had really good chemistry with uh, Julian, who was uh, Jabril Nantambu. Julian, the kid. He was great. He was great. Yeah, yeah. I loved him. He was fantastic. Yeah, he was good. Him and uh, Oscar, my two uh, stars of the film. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you didn't like Oscar? Fucking wanted to punch Oscar in the face. <laughs> so hated Oscar. Oscar, <laughs> I mean, Cameron is like right behind him. But oh, Cameron's terrible. <sighs> in this, like he's better in the kills. No, Oscar, like when he's like, he's in the yard right before he gets killed. No, That's no, great. I hate great no, scene. no. Great scene. Oh, it's funny. So how about David Gordon Green as a director? What do you guys think of his work? This is the first movie of his I saw. I think he should stick to comedies. <laughs> okay, well, do you like his comedies? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a very interesting take, I guess. I thought this first movie, I thought he did a pretty good job with it. I would say Halloween Kills, he kind of falls off. I think as a director of this movie, he does a good job. My problem with him is that, and this is really difficult, I think, there's no suspense in this movie. There's no tension. Therefore, as a Halloween film, in my eyes, it fails. 
I, I wouldn't say there's no tension. I would say there's little yeah, there, tension. Well, there, and there's one. a lot more tension in this than there is in Halloween Kills. Don't compare it to Halloween Kills. Just because it's better than Halloween Kills doesn't mean that's scary. I watched them in order, but then I rewatched 2018 after watching Kills. In 2018, so much better. Kills is not scary at all. There's very little stalking in Kills, right? Because it's it's more overload, in-your-face, Jason Voorhees-type approach. I'll give him this. I I really liked the first scene in the movie at uh, at the state hospital. After that, I just didn't feel like there was really any tension. I'm giving him a hard time. It's a well-made film. I will say that. I think you're wrong. I think it does a good job with it. And I do think that one of the examples where the tension, I think, does work is the motion light sensor scene. I think that one is pretty effective. Yeah, that's the one. That's what I was talking about. That's the one with the yeah. Oscar. Really I think good. that's pretty good. I thought that, that was really? a great scene. I just don't think so at all. Uh, I don't know. His favorite films are in order. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Gravy Train. I've never even heard of that. The Bad News Bears, Deliverance, Nashville, and One Flew Over, over the Cuckoo's Nest. So, that's a crazy list. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, <laughs> just want to sit down what? for like Deliverance and then One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for a, an uplifting two-parter. To me, that just sort of says all. I, this is not a director I would that I would gravitate towards. The only one in there is 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm not saying that those are bad films. Just a little odd for me. Again, it's a well-made film. Uh, now, granted, I, I, I saw the movie back in 2018, but I don't remember being terrified then either. There's a, probably a perception that people have moved past having patience for something like the original Halloween. You only see three people die and it's you know slow building. And I'm saying this is you know movie studios and people need short attention and big gore and all that kind of stuff, right? Walking to school, they, they cover that topic exactly. So some guy in a mask killed right. three people. That's like that's small potatoes these days. Yeah, I, I was going to bring that up because it is sort of true. Should we care? <laughs> Should we really care anymore? <laughs> well, Lauren cares. <laughs> Maybe it's just best to not try to recapture that magic. All right. Well, I can tell we really want to talk about this movie. So should we just uh, jump right into it? Yeah. What's, it, what's this movie about? Colin or Marcus, give us a plot summary. The plot follows a post-traumatic Laurie Strode who prepares to face Michael Myers in a final showdown on Halloween night, 40 years after she survived his killing spree. That's not really correct and accurate from a marketing standpoint because this does not end up being the final showdown. Well, whatever. It's billed as a final showdown. It, w- it would have been a really good finish to the franchise, <laughs> except they made one more. Kinda, honestly. I did not know that this was supposed to be a trilogy. In fact, when you yeah, told me that, that it was a trilogy, it. what? You, there's even one more? <laughs> Like, we got to wait for one more. <laughs> well, not only that, but apparently <laughs> Halloween Ends, which is the third film in the new trilogy, takes place four years after the events on Halloween night. What? Yep. They're not just continuing it one more? Which means, by the way, that Michael Myers is going to be around attacking people at the age of 65. And I do have some questions there because if he's chained up, he's not getting a lot of cardio. So if he's 61, 65, he still has a fair amount of energy for... No, that's not right, is oh, it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he's 21, 78? What are his uh, LDLs and HDLs like? I mean, and that prison that prison <laughs> food can't be that that great for you in terms of uh, getting all the your nutritional requirements. <laughs> I mean, this whole yeah. thing about him being sixty one and then going on this killing spree is ridiculous. I do have a theory, okay. that we can discuss later. So four years later, are they gonna like they're gonna talk about it in flashbacks? Uh, I just don't understand the need. I thought that they had a really great opportunity. In this film, 2018. To just end it. 
to, to end it because I thought yeah. it was a really strong ending. And yeah, yet, I totally but agree. it wasn't. Why? Why? So this film actually opens at Smith's Grove <laughs> Sanitarium. Smith's Grove is a location. Having that appear again right in the beginning is like, that's pretty compelling because that's where Myers was obviously in the original. Some of the imagery in the beginning, I think is pretty effective. Score is kind of ominous. There are quick flashes of patients and, you know, patients in a mental hospital, never the, something that makes you feel terribly comfortable. So two podcasters that are there, they're true crime podcasters. So come on, can we, can we just talk about this? What kind of self-important assholes are doing <laughs> podcasting? <laughs> Fucking podcasters, man. God, hate them. thing is, then they run into Dr. Sartain, and so he's played by... Haluk Bilgener. Yeah. Uh, and he is the stand-in or the replacement for Dr. Loomis. And you can kind of gloss over this because you're more interested in the visuals, but as they're walking, you hear Dr. Sartain say things like... Michael has been my life's obsession. I've examined every single case file written on him. I was a student of Dr. Loomis before he passed away. And then I lobbied the University of Illinois to be assigned to Michael myself. Any progress? Uh, he's been seen by over 50 clinical psychiatrists and with each many different opinions. Dr. Loomis was the only one to see him in the wild. And he concluded he was nothing more than pure evil. So I just want to ask, as a, as a psychiatrist, is that a diagnosis? <laughs> it's like, do you have that on the form? Uh, what's your, what do you think here? Well, I think it might just be pure evil. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was very strange, too, because he said he was a disciple of Dr. Loomis. He, like, took over right after Dr. Loomis, but then Michael also had 30 other psychiatrists trying to help him. It was a very strange dialogue throughout that. I thought that just didn't work at all. And they're trying to lay the foundation for what happens with Sartain later, which is the worst thing in this movie, but we'll get there in a little while. And they don't. Yeah. That's the thing. They don't. That's why I thought, like, it, it was messy. It was a complete surprise. I, like, had to watch it a second time to really even understand what was going on there. They could have done more up front, I think, if they were really going to push that angle. Yeah. Yeah. I do like the visuals of the courtyard. So the, the courtyard has this, oh, has this sure. black and white checkered floor. It makes me think a little bit of, remember in Body Heat, you know, Ned's office had that black and white tiled floor. And, and for Ned, it was kind of a chess match between him and Kathleen Turner. Yeah. Is it a game? And is he trying to outsmart you kind of thing? But I do think the visuals of having... Meyer standing there and you have this yellow line on the floor that you're not allowed to step over. All that is actually super effective and it makes him menacing. There, there's a sense of just innate menace in having Myers and those other guys chained up in the courtyard. Yeah, that was really, really effective scene. He just stands there, doesn't do anything. It shouldn't be scary, but it is just like the fact that this guy's talking to him and yelling at him and trying to like provoke some sort of response. It's just nothing. And then all the other inmates are, uh, you know, the other patients are all screaming and yelling and all sorts of stuff going on. It's really yeah. effective. I thought it was great. Great scene. Yeah. Visually, it, it really is a great scene. I, I think this is the scene that stands out to me the most as being this movie, this this version. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of these movies, in my mind, they all run together. And so <laughs> it's really... It's a, wait, am I watching the zombie version? No, no. Okay. No, this is the, uh, the Blumhouse version. Okay. Uh, this one really stands out. I think it was really, really well done. I don't understand the motivations of the characters. And I don't understand why the podcasters were allowed to like basically <laughs> oh, yeah. poke a snake with a stick. <laughs> but um, now, I mean, it makes more sense when you see that other scene later right. in the film. Basically, Sartain is letting them do that. 
he not only does the podcaster want to provoke he says a, it though too. He's trying to provoke a response as well. Yeah. He was jealous because Loomis was the only one who saw him in the wild. He's been completely unresponsive. So it's like, all right, well, fuck it. We're, I'm going to lose him basically in about, what, a week or two. Yeah. He was desperate to see him work. So that was, it was interesting, certainly. Uh, one thing I did like about that scene is the, the podcaster that shows up with the mask, he says, I borrowed something from a friend at the attorney general's office, Michael. Yeah, bullshit. So I was kind of curious about that. Hey, Steve, can you go down to the evidence locker and steal a mask for me <laughs> and just give me some evidence? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a podcaster and I'm very important. <laughs> That's a little bit of a leap, but okay. I also wanted to know why Corey, who was the, uh, the male podcaster, the English dude, why he didn't just like walk around to the other side of the, of the <laughs> yellow line so he could actually see... Uh, yeah, his, right. his, but maybe he wasn't that interested in it. Also, if you look at the placement of the concrete block within the yellow square, mm -hmm. it is not at the center of the square. And I feel that if you went around to the other side, <laughs> maybe he could reach you. Really? He might, might. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure Michael would get you. So you mentioned this when we were talking earlier, but one thing that I think is interesting from a direction perspective is that they do make sure that you never actually get a clear shot at his face, right? Because you don't want Michael Myers yep. to be humanized in any way. And so you only see the side profile. The choices they make there are obviously very specific. If you got a full face shot of Michael Myers, then for the rest of the movie, he is that guy, but he's wearing a mask. Right, he's humanized. I think that opening scene is really effective. I like it. Yeah, and you can see, because you do see a sort of like backside view, you can see that he's got a scarred left eye from the, uh, the coat hanger right to the eye yeah so so that's good oh did he have a did he have a scar on his neck i didn't look for that he may have yeah because she got she got him with the knitting needle in the neck right so i'm wondering that makes yeah, me wonder knitting if it's needle, neck. Uh, i will give david gordon green credit here because he does effectively ratchet up the tension in this scene building with the background music the inmates who are starting to like get very very agitated yeah Aaron Corey, the podcaster, he's almost yelling, trying to provoke a response. And Myers is just standing there completely silent, not moving. And it's like building, 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 building. And boom, they immediately cut to the Halloween title card with the music. You can feel it, can't you? It's a part of you, Michael. It's a part of you. Say something. Say something, Michael. Say something! And I got chills when that happened. Yeah. So that was really, really well yeah. done. It's, it's, really a, it, it's a agree. fantastic transition to the credits. And not only that, but the fact that, you know, the pumpkin imagery and the fact that they're even using the same font from the original film for both the, you know, the notification on the screen later that says Haddonfield, but also for the title itself. That attention to detail, I really enjoy and appreciate. I think they did a really nice job with it. Yeah, absolutely. It really ties you back to the original. You feel like, okay, this is a sequel. Yeah. This is a sequel to that first film. Yeah. And they also, did you notice the pumpkins were like coming to life instead of dissolving, they were like coming yeah. back up. Resurrection of, you know, the reboot of the franchise and pumpkins coming back to full shape. Yeah, good point. A little nice little touch. Yeah. So from there, our two intrepid podcasters decide that they're going to go out and try to meet with Laurie Strode. As they're pulling in, he says, Could it be? that one monster has created another. And although the 
iron bars and barbed wire that separate them are both strong and sharp. The metaphysical lines are blurred and slight. Both exist in isolation, fettered by their own fear and hatred of one another. Yeah. Could it be that the only hope of rehabilitation Spooky. is through confrontation? That's just kind of a throwaway line. It just kind of sets up the rest of the movie. There's a lot of trying to tie the two of them together. So they, they promised Laurie some cash and Laurie says, okay, and then lets him in and they have a very quick conversation, but they do ask her about the boogeyman, which they, and they reference that somehow she may have used that during an interview at some point. And so they, they ask her if the, you know, the boogeyman is real, which, yeah, the boogeyman thing, I don't know. It's, it's a little heavy handed to me, I guess. I, I can't imagine that she would ever be dropping that in previous interviews, but I get it. They're trying to make you think that Myers is the boogeyman. I think it totally works because it's 40 years later, but I mean, I'm sure that she was interviewed immediately following the initial attack right. and she was going on about that initially. So I think she probably did say it in, in, in many interviews. And I mean, I take it to mean that there's been a lot written about this case. Yeah, which does beg the question, why? What made this so distinct in uh, the history of American crime? What made this movie so distinct? Guy murders his sister when he's six years old with a, a, a kitchen knife. You're right. I stand corrected because that, that, the fact that he murdered somebody who was six, that is, that is an interesting point. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then he comes back and then kills three more yeah. people. Yeah, like, yeah. That's he basically like, uh, he goes home, escapes from a mental hospital, goes home, hangs out in his decrepit, abandoned childhood home, and then murders, what, four other people? You forget that he eats at least one dog. Right. Eats a dog. But come on. Everyone's going to be fascinated by this. Yeah, well, and then the podcasters are trying to get Lori to... She, they, they're asking, actually asking her to come confront Michael directly. And one of the things that, you know, one of the lines of dialogue is, you know, come with us, free yourself. Again, self-important yeah. podcasting assholes. Fuck, fucking podcasters. <laughs> I, I did like how, the way, how she talked to them. She was very, like, dismissive and very, like, condescending to them. Well, then from here, it bounces over to Lori's daughter's house. So this is where you have the... What, what is their last name in this movie? Because they're not Strodes, right? Nelson. Nelson. Oh, okay, I missed that. So the, the Nelson family, which is really Lori's daughter and Lori's granddaughter. Karen and Allison. And Ray. Let's not forget Ray. You want to shit under my sink? I will murder you and your whole family. <laughs> I swish when marshmallow fluffed the peanut butter. See how those little bastards eat that. Was it? Oh, mother. Oh, man. I got peanut butter on my penis. <laughs> Ray. It was a little too much comic relief, I think. <laughs> so there's a little bit of conflict that's set up. And what you learn through the, the conversation is that Lori is estranged from her daughter and her granddaughter wants to have some connection with her grandmother, Lori. So Karen, Lori's daughter, is definitely not facilitating a connection there. There's some familial tension because of that. Allison meets a couple of her friends. So it's Dave and Vicky. By the way, there are so many callbacks to the rest of the franchise. They're walking down the street. One thing I do like is it, it very much feels like the Halloween vibe, right? So you're actually getting a sense of when Lori was walking yeah. to school or walking with, walking home from school with her friends. So that, that same kind of, you know, kind of neighborhood wandering feel, which I think is pretty good. And the other thing that's kind of fun here is all of the mythology around Michael Myers being Lori's brother is basically just kneecapped with a single sentence. It was a bullshit rumor that anybody ever thought that he was her brother. So I did like that, even though it's kind of funny that Carpenter was the one that ultimately created that. 
Yeah, I thought that was interesting when you said that Carpenter created that. Yeah. Yeah, I do like how they just, there goes that out the window, debunking that bullshit. Dave is, is a pumpkin exploding enthusiast, and so they show him. One thing I like here. He's a mushroom cloud lane motherfucker, motherfucker. Well, I was going to say, so <laughs> the firework that he puts inside a pumpkin to blow up, I just want to note that. It looks like a quarter huge. stick of dynamite. I'm not sure exactly what that thing is, but yeah. yeah. I was actually a little disappointed they didn't use that elsewhere in the film. Like it wasn't, there was no like foreshadowing with that. He didn't use like his love of explosives anywhere else in the movie. Yeah, that's funny. I thought I had the same thought, which is I was expecting them to call back to that at some point because pretty large explosive for no other reason than just to blow up a pumpkin. Not everything is foreshadowing. That's true. I was expecting Ray to to, uh, capture Michael Myers with some (laughs) mousetraps. Or maybe, uh, you know. Shit under my Maybe put some peanut butter on Michael Myers' penis. It's all, it's all foreshadowed. Okay, it's it's not that kind of a movie. So then they get to school. So and this is where Allison is looking out the window. And again, this is another super direct callback to the original Halloween because she's basically sitting in the exact same seat that Lori was sitting in uh, in the classroom. They're having a conversation about fate, which is in the original Halloween. Lori herself is asked a question and has to answer it about fate. All the callbacks, I think, were actually a little too annoying and obnoxious. To a certain degree. It was just a little too much. You can tell that these guys really loved the original and they just threw in all sorts of What I of think is actually more interesting is all the callbacks they make to the sequels that they then ignore. That to me is actually yeah. even more interesting, right? Because you have the Halloween 3 masks in here. You have a bunch of stuff that directly references Halloween 2, which I'll mention when we get there. But there's a lot of it. To me, that stuff's just making a movie for fans and not... Their focus is not making a great movie, right? Fan service... Yeah. yeah, I mean, there certainly is that. Some of it, it works, and maybe others, it's distracting. Like this one that you were just talking about with Laurie standing outside the window. Right. I liked that one. But then when, when there are story beats that are very similar, when Michael's stalking Vicky, okay, now I'm starting to think, okay, well, now I know what's going to happen. Right. So that's not so great. The other thing that's interesting there is they cut back to Laurie's house. So that you mentioned Sarah Connor, right? Lori has a full Justice League secret hideout. She has a little garage door opener thing that slides a counter out of the way, and it's a secret basement where she has weapons and canned goods to survive an awful long time. By the way, why do all that prep if you're just building a trap down there? But anyways, we can talk about that later. But she has a full weapon cabinet. Uh, You see her, I think this is where you see her doing practice shooting mannequins. I do find it interesting that of all the weapons she has, because at one point behind her, you see what looks like, you know, like a semi-auto, like, you know, AR-15 or something like that. And she's using this old Winchester rifle. It, it has a 15 magazine capacity. I, I was curious to see what uh, it held, but it's a very old gun. So of all the guns she has, the fact that she's using a lever action Winchester for the big showdown, I think is kind of interesting. Stopping power. Yeah, but why not use a handgun in that situation? I mean, how impractical is it to take a rifle around with you in a small house? Well, if you're going to do that, if you want, you should have a Desert Eagle on you. <laughs> Lori does learn that Michael is being transferred. And so there is a very interesting scene where she has her car and she goes to the prison. She knew exactly when that, that transfer was happening. It was like 7 p.m. and She was still obsessed. It wasn't like the podcasters came back. And... Oh, no. She was still obsessed, yeah. She wanted him to escape. I don't think she wanted him to escape. She said that she wanted him to escape because she wanted to kill him herself, right? She wants to kill him. Why didn't she just like roll up on the bus and go in with a shotgun and just take him out? Because I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Then it would have been like a 38 minute movie. The police would have stopped her probably. 
The police, yeah, that, because they have such amazing prison guards on that bus. So there was a quick scene where Lori joins her granddaughter and daughter at dinner after she sees the bus. I do like this scene because Jamie Lee Curtis is doing a good job of projecting exactly how fucked up Lori is after seeing Michael because you see her, she walks to the table and she grabs Ray's wine glass and starts drinking it. I don't know if she was supposed to be on the wagon or not, but she's looking a little rattled. I think that's a pretty good scene for her. She's, she's definitely not on the wagon. Well, her daughter expresses Off surprise that she's drinking. <laughs> I think that she said she would be good around her. Uh, okay. That was a huge pour of wine, huh? That restaurant was very generous. <laughs> hey, you know, only the best at, uh, at Applebee's. Or maybe it was the Olive Garden. I was going to guess Olive Garden. Yeah, so then from here, it does cut to the bus crash. There's a, a father and his son driving down the road. <laughs> By the way, the father and son are in the car, and they're having, a, they're having a conversation. And the kid just says, he wants to be a dancer and wants to go to dance class. And his dad's like, you need to get out in the forest, son, and shoot something or whatever. So, I mean... <laughs> Such a bizarre it's, it's, line. This was definitely like, definitely uh, written by Danny McBride. <laughs> However, I will yeah. say that I love this kid's name, Lumpy. Lumpy. <laughs> <laughs> they drive up on a bus in the fog, by the way. So this is actually the, the atmosphere is, is pretty good because the people are spilled out all over the road. Uh, you see the bus is off the road. The dad slows down and, and gets out. Let me just say this. So if I saw like a bunch of patients that were wandering around the road and I drove up on a bus and I could see anywhere that it said hospital, facility, whatever it is. You remember that scene from Death Race 2000 where you hit the gas and you like, they ran down all the doctors? <laughs> That's what <laughs> yeah. I would do. I'd be like, look, be this, this is a job for the authorities. The bus looked like a prison bus. I don't know why you would get out of your car and just leave your kid there. The dad gets out of the car and he disappears. And then the kid calls 911. And I'm not sure what the, this is, I had a question here. What does the 911 operator ask him to do? Because he immediately exits his car and goes out and tries to find his dad. So that doesn't seem like the best advice under the situation. I don't think Lumpy was thinking too clearly here anyway. You know, he, he rolls up into the bus <laughs> and he's got his rifle out and it's like, hey, I'm an innocent person. Bam! Yeah. <laughs> happens to be Dr. Sartain no, who gets shot. So uh, here's a question for you. What happened to the bus? Uh, Michael apparently overpowered the guard and then the driver. At least that's what Sartain said. But I'm pretty sure that Sartain is the Don't one. Don't you think who, Sartain did it yeah. to, to let yeah. Michael free? Yeah, he totally set up the escape because he wanted to see Michael out in the wild. And somehow Sartain is in his thrall. I do think that the sound design here is really good. When the kid gets out and he's walking around and you hear the ambient sounds of the forest, I think it does a really good job of just kind of increasing tension because it makes you feel he's definitely out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I wasn't scared in the scene, but I thought it was a good tense scene. And the when the guy jumps out and he shoots him like immediately, you know, that's almost your initial response to, fuck. <laughs> From here, it switches over to a gas station. One thing that's interesting here is the gas station design is extremely similar to the gas station where Loomis comes upon Myers in Halloween 4. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it's several elements of it are almost identical. I'm sure it is. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Right before this, there's a quick moment where uh, I, th I think the sheriff is actually meeting with Dr. Sartain. So Sartain's been shot, so he's in the hospital. You hear the sheriff say... Take a look at this list. Most of them, minor offenders, mental patients. One stuck out, A2201. It's Michael Myers. Babysitter murders, 1978. 40 years. 
to this day. Michael Myers loose with a bunch of nutbags in Haddonfield on Halloween night? We want to have a fucking circus on our hands. But hey, what are we going to do? Castle Halloween? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do have a question here, which is, how did the sheriff ever get elected? I mean, what is this guy's motivation? <laughs> He's the worst law enforcement officer I've, I think I've ever seen in a movie. Well, he He's- used to be the sheriff over a, on Amity Island. What are we going to cancel the 4th of July? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know you said that um, this may have been debunked, but he does say, oh, the babysitter murders, right? So he includes that as a line of dialogue in the uh, actual scene. I think it's a totally good call out. I think the actual script that they used was actually the babysitter murders and then they modified that script. That's what I understood to be the history there. That's what I understood too. But then Deborah Hill came in and she punched up all the female roles. The gas station I thought was a pretty effective scene. Like I, I thought it was good tension. They actually used background because Meyer you can see Myers in the background a couple times in it and there's a really good usage all around and the reflections and like i thought they did a great job shooting the scene I, yeah i think the gas station scene is pretty great overall for a variety of reasons yeah. before we get to the murders i do like that the female podcaster when they pull into the gas station she has a line of dialogue that says and i know I just, i'm just kind of wondering <laughs> what what almost immediately i mean what does that mean exactly and how would you rank that like if you were going to say like turtle head versus almost immediately like what is a more urgent situation if you were going to what's a more urgent designation out of the two of those i don't know i i I think turtle turtle but almost immediately is right behind (laughs) by the way so her name is dana when dana enters the bathroom and she's checking out each of the bathroom stalls the look on her face is just absolutely priceless. I mean, it's just like one gross stall after another. It's just, it is wonderful. And it was a gross bathroom. The background work at the gas station where you see, you know, all of a sudden it's the Michael Myers origin story in terms of how he gets his jumpsuit, which you see him just like wailing on some dude in the garage in the background. Yeah. You know, I do like when he comes into the bathroom that there's a scene where he puts his hand over the stall and he drops a bunch of teeth. Yeah, it was nasty. That's obviously pretty disturbing and gross but if you remember in the original halloween michael myers there's a little bit of a trickster edge to him when he puts on the bob sheet so there's a little bit of a precedent where yeah okay he has a little bit of a almost like a mischievous sense of humor yeah a little like weird sense of humor or something that shows up once in a while (laughs) yeah because i was about to call bullshit on that and say there's no way but no you're you're absolutely right there is that little bit and it's like again with the head tilt Because it's almost like he's admiring his work, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. What is going on there? Is Michael Myers kind of a cool guy? (laughs) (laughs) Or pure evil. Could he he hang with us? He dabbles in (laughs) arts and crafts throughout the film. He has some latent creativity along with murderous rage. I think maybe his art is to combine both of them together. Hmm. Interesting. The bathroom attack sequence overall I think is pretty good. I mean, it's brutal. You know, Myers takes out both of the podcasters in, in pretty brutal fashion there's lots of head smashing that myers does in this film and in halloween kills lots of head and neck focus definitely definitely. not as much just kind of stabbing but here's where i'm just like it it starts to get a little bit out of control not so much in this movie maybe but certainly in halloween kills so dana is being attacked and then aaron 
the other podcaster, runs into the bathroom and he's carrying a crowbar and he smashes Michael across the face with that crowbar. Michael barely flinches. This goes back to what he's got this amazing strength. He can take a beating. He's got some sort of healing factor because, you know, like he never goes to the doctor. You know, he never gets (laughs) sutured up. What is going on here, right? As far as his ability to, to take a blow, I have a theory here. Well, what is it? Even if they're making this as a direct sequel to the original Halloween, I mean, Myers goes down three times in the original Halloween, right? He gets the, the coat hanger in the eye, he gets stabbed at one point, and he gets the knitting needle in the neck, right? And all those things are enough right. to actually stun him to the point like where he stops moving for a minute or two, at least. But when that happens, when he takes a, you know, a needle to the eye or, whatever, or to the neck, he doesn't really flinch. It happens, and he might get stunned a little bit right but it's not like he's screaming out in pain or anything like that like how can someone do that and here's what i think it is i think he has a medical condition that's either pain asymbolia or congenital insensitivity to pain known as congenital analgesia these are real very very rare medical conditions where people either they don't feel pain or they recognize the pain, but it does not bother them. It's a, extraordinarily rare. And it's also very dangerous. Right. Pain is a survival tool. If you put your hand in a fire and you don't pull it back because you're, you don't feel the pain, you could end up dying because of... Because your hand's on fire? Well, <laughs> yeah, because the rest of you burn up. No, no, but you can get you know infection and, and everything. That's if you're just going to take the very pragmatic view on how he does it, as opposed to the, he's a force of evil. Right. Well, we'll, we'll talk about this when we, we go deeper on Halloween Kills, but Halloween Kills definitely is setting it up to go a supernatural direction, it feels like. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The tolerance of pain, or he just doesn't feel pain, I think that's right. And he also has an adamantinium uh, skeleton and a healing factor. <laughs> Something. Because, I mean... He's got all three going. He He's actually a second cousin to Wolverine. Possibly. Yeah. yeah, I think a crowbar to your face would break a few, like your orbital bones, your cheekbones. You'd be, it would it would hurt. What, what's that lake up in Canada? Lake Alkali. Lake Alkali, yeah. I think he may have visited there after like Halloween too. He's a Weapon X program, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but enough nerding out. Uh, let's get back to some death. <laughs> So again, I think the attack sequence is really effective. And then at the end, Michael goes to the trunk of the car and puts the mask on. And I think there's two things about this. So one is you're seeing it through the back of the car window. And so when you see him put the mask on, the mask looks really effective. He has the jumpsuit now. So it's his um, back moment. However, he also chooses to shut the trunk of the car. And what it makes me realize is that watching Michael Myers do mundane tasks, uh, it kind (laughs) of lessens the impact. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's just closing the trunk because he wants to drive the car away. But uh, I don't know. There's just something about that that I thought was kind of funny. It works better when you don't see every every move and action he does. Like pop up in a can of tab and start guzzling or? No, it's <laughs> when he was making he was making that ghost. You saw him sitting there with the scissors and cutting out the uh, the sheet to make the ghost to put on Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have that as a note, actually. Like, that's, In fact, I made that specific note. It's funny. <laughs> There's a brief scene where Lori goes to her daughter's house and she's acting all frantic because at this point, Lori knows that Michael has escaped, but she chooses not to tell her daughter that. I think that's a very strange decision in the movie. Why does she not say explicitly, hey, 
we need to stay together because it appears that Michael Myers has escaped. Great, let's all go to your house or something like that. But she goes in the house and she knows Myers is gone, but she doesn't even say anything. It's very weird. Don't wait, does she know at that point? She does. Yeah. How did she find out? I, I forget. She saw the transport bus crashed. So she assumed he, yeah. he escaped. Oh, okay. It was, she, so she saw the newscast. Yeah. Exactly. They go back to the gas station briefly, probably to set up the Hawkins character. So Hawkins mentions that he was there the night that Myers was captured. And so that is something that does come up in Halloween Kills. So Michael goes wandering through the neighborhood, just decides to, you know, stretch his legs and do some killing uh, on Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Back when he, um, he, he, you know, he found the mask and he put it back on. I feel like he sensed some sort of being complete and... Do you think it was sporting a little wood at that point? <laughs> you had a little chubber. Quite possibly. You know, age 61, so who knows? So then we cut to the neighborhood, and I do think this early neighborhood sequence is, is actually another one that's really effective in the movie because, you know, you get a chance to see Myers out on the street on Halloween night. There's a couple of really nice shots here. The robotic motion of the body, I think, is pretty effective. You watch him walk back into a shed where he grabs a hammer. I think this is a, a reference or a call out to Halloween too because... If you remember the security guard in Halloween 2 in, uh, got killed by a hammer. It's the only time that Michael Myers used a hammer, I think, in the series. Wait. <laughs> yeah. we're, both, we're both shaking our head. Nope, You're don't like, remember that. If you recall, we're like, no. You want to talk about all the, the variances of the movies? I got you covered. So he takes the hammer and he goes into the house and there's a woman who's there and she's dressed exactly like a woman from Halloween 2 that Michael Myers steals a knife from. I will credit the sound designers here because you see this occur off screen. So Michael takes a hammer and he goes in the next room and the sound that, that makes while he's, he's hitting her with the hammer, it's, it's very effective. It sounds very disgusting. Yeah, I have a, in my notes, terrible sound effects. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> The scene's really good. I thought that was like one of the better scenes too. They're off screen. You hear this stuff and you see the table moving slightly. Like the chair gets kicked over. Just really like, really, really effective. And then there's a brief moment after that. I don't know. Maybe it's the highest single moment of tension maybe in the movie where you see Michael Myers walk over and he stands next to a baby's crib for a second. And you just kind of wonder, are they going to go there or not? And and they they choose not to. (laughs) So Myers just kind of looks down and then he he keeps moving. So right after he killed the woman with the hammer and then he goes over and he picks up the knife, Mm -hmm. right? I really thought at that point he's going to, he picked up that knife and he was going to look at it and go, no, not big enough. And then like choose like some other (laughs) really big knife. Because it seemed like it was a little bit small. And it really, I seriously, I seriously thought that he was going to do that. I kind of wish that he had. (laughs) Trade up. Goes for the cleaver. Right. Well, maybe not the cleaver, but just something bigger. So when he leaves the first house or the house where he got the knife, then he, there's a second attack. And this is also done, I think, really well because. That was one of my favorite. He walks up to the window and he's looking in the window and he sees a woman in there. And there's a pretty cool shot where he has the reflection on the glass. And this is the first time you hear that stinger. Like, you know, it's kind of the audio cue that you hear from Meyer. So that's done pretty effectively. And then you see him walk around the side of the house. And another thing they do, I think that's really effective, is you see his shadow on the wall as he's going into the house. And then, of course, you see him behind her, sort of a continuation of the, the stalking. I think all that is actually super effective. She's looking out the window. He just comes up behind her, like smashes her head against the uh, windowsill. Like she starts to scream, hits her head, and like knife through the throat. So quick and efficient. It's just brutal. But like, why? Why do you kill yeah, her? Yeah, no, I have that same question because yeah. 
it's interesting because this was one of the things, you know, in the original Halloween, it was great because you had no idea what this guy's motive was. In Halloween 2, they changed it so that it's specifically that he was going after his sister. They gave him a motive, which didn't really make any sense. So I guess for here, what they're just trying to say is that he's just this force of nature who likes to kill. And that's pretty much it. I think it was more, hey, we really want to show him stabbing someone through the neck. Well, yeah, of course. It's a slasher movie, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with all the things that you called out. But what I didn't like, I feel like there's too much going on in this particular scene. There's too many people about... The, the house is too close to the sidewalk. The houses themselves are too close together. I feel like it would have been way more effective if, you know, like in the original in Haddonfield, these, those houses were fairly spread out, well spaced, you know, apart. And there wasn't that many people out there, weren't that many trick or treaters. In this one, it's bustling. And I just keep wondering how did no one see that? There must have been 30 trick or treaters out on the street who would have seen him kill her through that window because of that it just it lost it these are the things that i I don't like about it i thought it was more effective because of that it could happen right there you have all these people around you think you would be safe but you're not i can see like they're out screaming and trick-or-treating and if you're not looking at the house that moment like she she's drawing the windows for me it just there's no opportunity because of that to build up any tension it wasn't scary but it was an effective scene this is where it's more slasher than suspense yeah well, I want suspense. No, I, I know. And there's, I think there are sequences of suspense, but this is not necessarily a an overall suspenseful film. Ones. Yeah. And I don't think it's really trying to be, honestly. Well, maybe they should be trying to do that. They're going to remake Halloween again right after Halloween ends is over. And I think the next person that takes a run at it should try to do it and make it as tense and suspenseful as possible and not go overboard on the gore. I, maybe people would be bored with that. I don't know. But I think it would be an interesting experiment to go back and try to make something a lot closer to the original. I agree. Yeah. I, I would at least try that. So Myers is kind of just loose in the neighborhood, having a good time killing people, just, uh, you know, kind of, <laughs> um, you know, getting his feet under him, learning how to do it again. So he's practicing. They cut to a school dance and it's a pretty elaborate school dance, by the way. I was going to say like, like where did they get the budget for this? Dance? I know, you know, the, in fact, the, I actually the, had that in my notes is like, you know, I was a student officer in high school and we barely had enough to cover the DJ. So yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm wondering, <laughs> does the, does the ASB have a super pack? Yeah, there, there must be something going on because this is a very elaborate dance. It looks great. Of course, one of the things from a call out perspective is that you see multiple masks from Halloween three. So the three masks from Halloween 3, which are the uh, pumpkin, witch, and skeleton, show up in this movie at different times. And they show up in Halloween Kills as well. There is some interaction between, uh, so this is Laurie's granddaughter, Allison, Allison and Cameron. And so Allison leaves for a couple seconds, and then Cameron is kissing a girl who is dressed as a tiger. The the dialogue here does not work at all. Like This is a very strange scene because have some discretion when they're having a conversation. Then he grabs her phone and throws it in a bowl of yogurt or something. And then she walks away. Under what circumstances would she ever walk away from her phone? And let's consider if it's a new phone, it's going to be, it should be able to survive the immersion in yogurt. So that whole scene is just, it doesn't, what they're trying to do is they're trying to come up with a plot device so she doesn't have her phone. And I think it's super clunkily handled. (laughs) I'd agree. I did not like this scene at all. First of all, I'd just like to say a dick move, Cameron, because uh, your girlfriend walks away to take a phone call and then all of a sudden you're kissing some other girl right. and then acting like nothing happened. And then you take your, her phone and throw it into what yogurt, a punch bowl, hummus. I don't know what it was. It looked like pudding. I thought it was pudding, pudding. Like custard or something. I don't know. He's <laughs> sitting at a table in the open dance and he has a flask and he's just drinking a flask, like sitting at a table at this high school dance. <laughs> and then 
he goes back into whatever that closet area is or something with uh, with Allison, and she points at the flask, and he's like, "Have some discretion." When again, he was just <laughs> drinking, like open using the flask at the table. I don't know the mechanics between her and the boyfriend. That that relationship doesn't ever feel like it works. I don't think in this movie. Well, you know, I, I did rank Cameron right after Oscar of people who need to get punched in the face. She storms off. Then from here, it cuts to the friends that they were walking to school with. You did miss earlier that Vicky, Vicky and Julian were watching on TV. Did you get the cut? Yes, Repo Man. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of which, I wanted to uh, call out another very odd... Voyagers? ...television clip. Yeah, Voyagers with Mino Palouse and John Eric Hexum. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> that was one of David Gordon Green's favorite shows as a kid. Ah. Uh, you want to include okay. the clip? Interesting. No wonder... So Vicky is is babysitting Julian, and then Dave comes over. Dave got the tattoo. Yeah, so, so Dave is uh, over there, and he got a tattoo for Halloween night. However, had a question here. So so he shows up, and she grabs him, and the line that she says is, "I went and got this tattoo because tonight is the night, the one we'll remember for the rest of our lives." You are so getting dry fucked tonight. <laughs> oh yeah. It's great. Great line. Dry fucking doesn't sound great. I mean, I think the presence of moisture <laughs> is generally a positive. So I just, what's your take on that? I think she means dry humping. <laughs> and so there's no, there's no sex. It's just going to be. Why would he get a tattoo you know. then? Because he was trying to push it over the edge to sex? I have no yeah. clue why. I have no idea what the tattoo is for, why he got it for that date. And it makes no sense. But uh, And so the other thing is, so Dave goes outside to smoke a joint. Because you got to do that when you're one of the dudes in the Halloween film. Remember Bob in the original? And he has a weird moment where he's looking at something and he's like, what is that? And he goes walking over. And, th- and then it's just, it's a motorcycle. So it's as if he's never seen a motorcycle before. That's, uh, it's a weird moment. He was high. <laughs> they wanted to get him into the garage. Like Annie went into the garage in Halloween. By the way, the one night of the year that I'm never going to get high, Halloween. <laughs> Yeah, probably a bad idea. <laughs> Imagine like paranoia. <laughs> Some dude walking around outside in Michael Myers outfit. And that just wouldn't be good. I did like the interaction because uh, Julian came downstairs and said he heard the, the boogeyman upstairs or something like that. I saw someone in the hallway standing outside my door. Oh, what's up, buddy? Those are fucked up things watching me from the dark. Ghosts and goblins, little buddy. Shut up, Dave. I heard him breathing and then I saw him. He's in here. Boogeyman's in this house. Okay. All right. Come on. I got you. Let's check it out. First. <laughs> He's like, I don't want you to get hurt. No, send Dave. <laughs> yeah, Julian was great. I do like when she goes up into the closet though, because he says, "Oh, you know, can you can you check my closet?" And the, this is a really good visual. It was, it was good enough that they used it in the trailer. But she goes to shut the closet door, and after she hits it a couple times, the the door slides open, and Myers is standing there, and then he takes a swing at her with the knife. Actually, stabs her, but I think just kind of grazes her. The closet has a light inside, and it is on. Mm-hmm. She opens the door. You see clearly Michael Myers standing there. Wouldn't it be more effective if the closet was dark, she opens the door, it's complete blackness. All of a sudden, you know, as your her eyes adjust, you see this white face, you know, just like in the original, right? I mean, where Myers is coming out of the hallway when Laurie's at the top of the stairs? Exactly. Yeah. Don't you think that would have been a lot scarier? Possibly. I do think that the shock value of seeing him behind the door and the way that it's framed is pretty effective. But we all knew. We all knew he was there. Right. Like we, we knew he was, right? Vicky didn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> Julian did. Yeah. yeah. So Michael goes to work, kills everybody in the house, basically. Not Julian. Did Julian get uh, killed? No, Julian got out, I think. Didn't he? He got out. He got out. I think so. 
Yeah. This is the first movie in a series where Myers actually kills a kid because he does kill the kid in the beginning that just wanted to dance. Remember the kid that shows up with his dad when the bus crash? Oh, so yeah, yeah. that's the only time in the Halloween series that Michael Myers has actually killed a kid. He was a little bit older. He might have been like 14, 15. It's like a certain age limit. I don't know. Yeah. He's like, well, you're not ripe enough for me to kill, I guess. What he actually said was, your name is Lumpy. I'm doing you a favor. <laughs> <laughs> so Laurie and the sheriff, they converge on the house. I'm not sure exactly how Laurie knows to go to that house exactly, but... She, she's listening to these. Oh, uh, the police scanner. Scanner. Okay. She's like patrolling the streets. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. And then Hawkins goes running in. And I have to say, Hawkins might be one of the worst law enforcement officers aside from the sheriff in this movie because Hawkins goes upstairs. Myers basically walks past him, like right behind him in the hallway. And then he's right behind him and he fires two shots that go wild. And, and Myers is somehow able to get out of the house. There's just one thing that never really works is if Michael Myers moves at a top speed of walking... <laughs> How can you not track him down more effectively? Not even that, but how can you not get away from him? I mean, why has no one ever figured out how to get away from Michael Myers? He knows one speed, a grandma speed. Right, so run or walk briskly. Right, and you'll find this, as we can talk about this in Halloween Kills, it's the same thing. And by the way, as far as Hawkins goes... He's the worst shot ever. Yeah, I mean, we'll, <laughs> we'll see a little bit of him in, in Halloween Kills, and I think it'll make sense why he's, he's such a terrible uh, deputy, at least... As a marksman. Maybe under those circumstances, he could get rattled by what he sees in front of him. I guess that would make sense. Yeah. I mean, look, this guy's traumatized too. Yeah. Yeah. I think also um, Michael Myers has the Nightcrawler's ability to teleport is another superpower he has. The the logic of of the Myers (laughs) movement, uh, it doesn't doesn't make a ton of sense. And you just have to kind of go with it, I guess. So Lori does show up and she sees what she thinks is Myers in an upstairs window. It's actually a reflection in a mirror. But she just takes a shot anyways. So I kind of like that. Hey, the crazy woman that lives on the outskirts of town in the, in the fortress she built is standing in the middle of the street firing weapons. <laughs> anybody, <laughs> yeah. anybody in Haddonfield going to be a little concerned about that? I think at that point, they're going to have more to contend with, <laughs> given all the, all the dead bodies. That's true. That's true. Dr. Sartain shows up, and so he's out of the hospital. And this is where the sheriff is like, oh, we have to listen to the doctor. Again, I think the sheriff in both this movie and Halloween Kills is just, I don't know, I don't even know what his motivations are. He's just a bizarre character. But it does cut back to what I think is actually a really good scene. So Allison is walking back from the dance and she is with Oscar. Oscar, yep. They, they hop a fence. They're trying to take a shortcut and there's a motion sensor light in a yard and the light comes on. You see Myers in the back. The light goes off. The light comes on again. Myers a little bit closer. I really think that that scene is really effective. I think it's done really well. And I think the use of the motion sensor light and particularly the, you know, that in combination with the Myers mask is a really good combo. The whole scene I thought was great from them jumping in, doing the shortcut. He tries to kiss Allison and I thought it was funny. He's a goofy guy intentionally. And I thought it worked out good. He's all trying to explain himself. He's got the line. Their, their beautiful bodies got me off. Wait, what? <laughs> His line when he's like lying down, he's like trying to like explain why he was kissing her. Allison, I'm like really drunk right now. Seriously, I got really horny at the party and like all these girls were like dancing on me. Their beautiful bodies got me all chubbed out, Allison. I, Allison, please, they like, they were feeding me guacamole in all these sexy ways. He's like, oh, their beautiful bodies got me all chubbed out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they set this guy up as a bit of a douchebag. <laughs> He's not a douchebag. He's just a he's a doofus kid. Yeah, he's, he's a, a doofus. he's a total yeah. doofus. To me, he's more far far more doofus and 
somewhat harmless. He, he seemed more sympathetic than that. Uh, well, I, I think we know how I feel about Oscar. As far as the scene goes, maybe it would be better on the on the big screen. I just feel like Michael was way too far off in the distance for it to have been effective. I think the fact that he closes the distance is what makes it effective, actually. But I could barely see him. It was all right. It wasn't a bad scene. It just, I felt like it could have been better. Mm. I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was good. This is the problem with, with these movies is that the bar was set incredibly high with the original. No sequel is ever going to come anywhere close to the original. But I do have some thoughts about what this movie, how this movie ranks. So we can talk about that at the end. I like this movie. Oh, no, it's, I think it's a good movie. I mean, I want to be clear about that. Halloween is a true masterpiece, like the original. And so you're just not going to ever get close to it. So this is where you have... uh, So Hawkins is driving the car. He has Sartain in the car. And he sees Michael. And I do love his move here because he just basically runs him down. So so that's that's pretty cool. He just basically smashes him with the car. So that's well done. So Dr. Sartain completely loses his shit because Hawkins is basically going to put a bullet right in Meyer's brain just to end it. And Sartain goes out there, and then all of a sudden, in what's supposed to be, I guess, I guess a big twist, Sartain pulls out a knife and stabs Hawkins in the throat. This is like a huge leap of logic. I mean, I understand what they were trying to set up with Sartain's dialogue early on, but I think this is a pretty stupid moment in this movie. I think it's the worst moment in this movie. I totally agree. I did not buy this heel turn one bit. They didn't lay the foundation well enough. Now we we just assume that he orchestrated the escape so that he could study him in the wild to what end though so he wants to understand evil or right will he talk to me now like he's in the wild so will, will he actually say something there's some movie i don't know why i cannot i can't think of it right now but skagnetti on skagnetti that's wants it to write the book <laughs> <laughs> letting loose this incredibly dangerous predator and thinking that somehow because you've done that it won't turn on you, and then it immediately turns on you. I think it's somewhat. There's of a, a lot about this scene that I think is just it doesn't work right. So you have a moment where Sartain puts on the mask, and then you see him. He, you know, he's lit by the car lights, and the head comes up. In some respects, it's kind of an interesting shot, but it really is stupid that he puts on the mask at all. I think he was shot in the shoulder, and somehow he's able to drag drag Meyer's whole body and then stuff him in the back seat of the car where he also has Allison. This is another scene that doesn't work. If you're Allison and you're in the car and this guy is trying to stuff a serial killer back in the car with you and he has a broken arm, you don't think that she could overpower him and get past him? I mean, come on. This is not my favorite part of the movie, I'll say. I agree. I agree. This is one of the weaker parts. So one thing, though, the mechanic of the idea that she is back in the car with Myers, who's passed out, and then will come to at some point. Kind of terrifying. That's scary yeah, as yeah, shit yeah. to think about that situation. Sure. That, yeah. that part of it's terrifying. So that, that does work. They end up driving to Lori's house. So Myers ends up, of course, like Colin mentioned, turning on Sartain. And there is a head stomp that I would say is slightly gratuitous. <laughs> It's a really good foot. Slightly? <laughs> can, can, I, can you really smash someone's head like a melon with, with just your boot? I, I don't know. This, is that is that even it, possible? I guess this is demonstrating Michael Myers, you know, his, yes. his core strength. <laughs> I don't know. But man, he basically liquefies this dude's head by stepping on it. So it's it's pretty nasty. De Niro would be impressed. For sure. Goodfellas moment. So at this point, Allison does escape. So she's running through the forest to get to Lori's house. And there are two cops that are sitting there. And there's a little bit of random dialogue about Vietnamese sandwiches. I, I loved this scene. Here's the thing. So there are, are several scenes in Halloween 5 of all movies where there are two kind of wacky 
Keystone cops that actually they played slide whistles while these guys are talking. So I was kind of wondering if maybe in some way it was a a reference to that. I don't know if it is. That's going really deep. I thought the cops were interesting because the dialogue was okay. But then when they go to investigate the car, it feels like they act like actual cops for a minute. So I did like that. I, I do like a good Bon Me though too. I just thought the the discussion was it was funny, dumb, but it's a conversation you would totally buy a couple of cops having while they're just basically sitting on a stakeout doing nothing, right? I liked it. I thought it was pretty witty. I also think that a peanut butter and jelly bond me does sound disgusting, but if you actually had it in front of you, it'd probably be all right. I mean, it wasn't bad. I was just I was more wondering about the Halloween five reference if there was a if that was intentional. Uh, I, well, who knows? Yeah. I did wonder why that they didn't just drive up to the other squad car <laughs> instead of sitting there going like, What what's Hawkins doing? Right. <laughs> like just just drive up there. The cops are investigating the car and then you you know, there's a there's a slight music cue and you see, you know, Myers show up just kind of on the edge of the frame. And I I did like that visual. I think that's pretty good. You know, the moments where he is in the background or doing a little bit of stalking that, you know, that to me is that feels more true to kind of his original Halloween character than some of the over the top stuff. It's one of the reasons why Halloween Kills is a, a lesser film than this one, in my opinion. Allison is running through the forest. And so one of the questions I had was, well, if she's running to the house, how does she get there ahead of Myers? They actually solved that problem because Myers drives the squad car right up to Lori's house. After killing them, by the way. He kills the two cops. He drives the car to Lori's house. It's a total of two minutes of screen time. And based on what's happening in the film, you assume it's near real time. And then what happens is Toby goes out there to look in the car and he opens the door. What Myers has done is he has cleaned out one of the heads of the police officers and put a flashlight in there to turn his head into a jack-o'-lantern. So I do have a question here. I mean, obviously Myers has demonstrated his arts and crafts abilities in other parts of the film, right? So he did the, he, you know, he cut out the eye holes on the sheet and all that, but the ghosts? Yeah. could you really hollow out a skull in like two minutes? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think it would take more than that. I, I agree. A pumpkin's pretty easy to hollow out. And that takes I had that as my comp, by the way. In fact, I took notes here. I said, uh, when I'm carving pumpkins, it's at best a four to five minute clean out under ideal conditions. Right. And all he had was Sartain's pen knife thing. So it seems like this is a little bit of a leap. Do you think he did a jagged edge in the skull to like open it up? Well, do you think he went in from the top? Because I thought the top was intact. Oh, no, he, so he, no, he definitely, he definitely went up through the like, neck, right? He, he had to, he had to, yeah, go up through the neck and. You know, there's a lot of meat there. Wait, but you got, you got to get your hand through the magnum foramen, right, at the base of the skull to really get up there and get the brain. So it's kind of a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but look, this this man knows knives. So I'd give him a good 30 seconds to, to hollow out that neck, pull out the all the viscera and stuff. I think that the real genius was taking the flashlight and sticking it up there to make it into, into a jack-o'-lantern. I mean, that was fantastic. Creativity at its finest. It does show his uh, creative side. Yeah. And now I will actually have be, be having nightmares. In the house. So Lori sends her daughter down into the uh, the Justice League room after opening it up. Th- then for for a reason, the only reason I can think that she does this is because they want the image in the trailer. She sees that Meyer's in the front of her house and she has windows on either side of her door. And so her plan is to go up and put her head as close to those windows as possible so Myers can smash through and grab her. <laughs> so... There's a lot of flaws. Like her whole plan was like this, like she's been building this compound and she's been staked out there and she's like totally prepared. She's been waiting for this day for 40 years and she's like ready for it. You know, her son-in-law Ray goes out there and she's looking out the window so she can see him and she can't do anything. Poor Ray gets strangled two minutes. Like Michael's done with it. 
She does nothing. She finally comes down the stairs. Yeah, she gets her head banged against the wall. What was your plan here? The whole process seems like you're getting more lucky than anything. So this is what's weird about this scene. because So she's down in the panic room. And at that point, it's a, it's a hidden base, right? Yeah. Myers is upstairs. And then she chooses to take a shot at him from inside the panic room, thus alerting him to their location. So, okay, she's not hiding. And I guess if you get to the end of the movie and assume that she was trying to get him down there, Maybe that makes sense. Yeah. But initially I was kind of like, mm, I don't know. And then she goes upstairs and says, you know, I have to finish this. And that sequence where she's going through the house, it's both effective and kind of dumb, I think, at the same time. Because yeah. th- there's really no score. So it's just, it's very quiet and the flashlight and she has the rifle. And, you know, she's going room to room and clearing the rooms and all that. If Myers was in one of those rooms, why not just shut the door and lock him in there and then just start shooting him? I mean... The mechanics of her plan and what she's doing here, it's not great, I don't think. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, look, as far as the security gates go, it's an effective way to make sure that he doesn't double back on you. But it also serves to, if he is in there, she could trap him, right? So I like the, the whole idea of that. I think that was smart. What I don't like about this is you're setting up a confrontation with a serial killer that has completely traumatized you and messed with your head. It's 40 years later and it's the final showdown. Why in God's name do you have a room full of mannequins? <laughs> so, so actually I'm looking at my notes right now and I have, I have a question. Terrorized by a white masked individual. So you put white mannequins in your house? <laughs> I wouldn't want yeah, them in there at all. That- so the other thing that, that I think is interesting in this scene, so she goes into one of the rooms, you know, you see the louver doors, is that what they are? Like the doors upstairs at the in the house in the original, right? So you're looking at that, and in that scene, what I think is sort of interesting is, you know, she walks into the room, the closet is there, and the there's a door to a balcony that's open. That's exactly what Lori did in Halloween to try to, to try to throw Myers, or try, to try to get away from Myers. She went and opened the window, and she jumped into the closet. That room is the exact same dimensions as the room from the original. The exact same doors, the exact same everything in that room as the uh, original movie. The obsession of the uh, filmmaker making that. Do you know why they did that? It's a switcheroo. It's even more than that, actually. So it became a switcheroo. So they originally built that set because... They were actually going to refilm the end of the original Halloween. What they were going to do is they were going to have Myers kill Loomis and have Laurie shoot Myers. They were going to change the ending to the original Halloween. And so they built that set with the intention of doing that. And then John Carpenter apparently talked them out of the idea of changing the end to the original Halloween. Because they actually, that was their first scene that they were going to do. They were going to reshoot the end of the original Halloween. I'm glad they didn't go that direction. Yeah, that would have been. Yeah, but the end result of that is it's an identical set piece to the room that you had in the uh, at the climax for the original Halloween. So that's interesting. But now they've changed roles. Yeah, she falls out the window. Yeah, she's the one seeing if he's in the closet. Does she get shot or she just fall out? She gets stabbed, falls out the window. Right. She gets stabbed. And then he looks out over the balcony, sees her, turns around, looks back, and she's gone. I thought it was a cool scene, though. That was one of those call-outs that I thought was good because they, they played around with it a little yeah. bit. What I want to know, whose dead body was that up in the closet? Is that, that was right. When did he get the body, bring it up into the house and drag it up there? That made no sense to me at all. He teleported. <laughs> That's the only thing that made sense. Because he came into the door, then he walked in, and like she shot at him. Like At what point did he like, oh, let's go out to the car and grab Ray? You'd hear him dragging a dead body <laughs> into the house, right? No, I can't remember if it's Linda or Bob's body. When Lori goes upstairs and finds the Judith Meyer gravestone and the, and the room set up. Again, another example of Meyer exercising his creativity in the original Halloween. But when she opens up the closet and she finds the body there, what Lori does is pretty much exactly the same. So it's again, it's another callback to the original Halloween. 
Hey, I forget where that all takes place at, at the end of Halloween yeah. with the headstone and, and all that. Is that in the old Myers house? No, it's actually in the, the house that Linda and Bob go over to have sex in. Okay, so is that where she, uh, where he falls off the balcony? No, that's or back that at the, the Doyle's house that Lori is, uh, where she's babysitting. Okay, okay. So they never go back to No, because if you remember in the original the Halloween, there's the, the, like I mentioned in the beginning, this fantastic sequence of tension where the music is just, you know, it's rising as she's walking across the street to this dark house, and then she goes into the dark house, and then she runs back across the street with her broken leg as Myers is walking after her and then gets in. So that's the original. Right, right, right. Okay. So Lori gets back into the house, and at one point, she actually cracks him in the head a couple times with a cast iron skillet. But before that, he like rips off the kitchen island. He's about to come downstairs, right? Yeah. And Karen's, she's panicking. I can't do it. I'm sorry, I can't do it. Gotcha. And then he appears and all of a sudden she's calm and she's like, gotcha. Yeah. And that was a big twist. Yeah, that was good. That was, that was good. good. Actually, I like that because I was initially annoyed because I, I'd forgotten, hadn't seen this movie in a while. And so I was annoyed that she was acting like that. I'm like, come on, handle yourself. You know, you had all this training. And then, okay, you did. You, you fooled me. Congratulations, uh, David Gordon Green. You got me. I thought that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Admiral Akbar appears. It's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> this is where then Laurie whacks him on the head with a cast iron skillet. And I'm thinking if you take two blows to the head with a cast iron skillet, and then backward somersault down a set of rickety stairs. Like, like for me, I'm dead. Right? Like I'm just gone. No, no <laughs> one can survive that. So frail. Myers at the end is able to get back up. And then what you figure out is that what Lori has built in terms of that panic room is it's a trap. So they lock Myers in there. They start some gas burning. Uh, she burns down her entire house to take him out. You would think that that would be a pretty effective way to make sure that Myers is gone forever. But of course, they did make a sequel, which we all saw. So we know that he does not die. That would have been a good end to the franchise, I thought. It would have been because when suddenly you realize that, yeah, it's a big trap. And then they, they click on all the burners down there. And it is literally wired to trap him and kill him. Yep. I was not expecting any of that. And so now I'm going, oh, whoa, wait a minute. This is, this is fantastic. What an ending. But I really felt like they should have stayed there and watched the house burn down. Oh, yeah. She had a wound, though, right? She got stabbed. Yeah, yeah. Get into the hospital. I, I guess, but still, don't you want to just... I do think the visual of him, like where Myers is basically standing perfectly still and looking up the stairwell as the fire is starting to swirl around him, I think that's a really good visual, yeah. too. I think that, that's very effective. Yeah, he's yeah. just standing there looking up. They run off to the hospital, and that would... Uh, we're going to stop here with our movie progression, and we'll pick it back up with Halloween Kills. But we can do a bit of a wrap on this film. I did like that Halloween Kills picks up exactly at this moment, which was, I thought, pretty cool. It was a good uh, transition, which I'm actually surprised that Halloween Ends does not just continue picking up at the end of uh, Halloween Kills. How could it? Everyone dies. Oh, shit, I spoiled it. (laughs) (laughs) Halloween Kills Everybody. Let me ask you this, guys. What did you learn from this movie? Artie actually touched upon it. Number one, Dave, you and Laurie Strode are both emotionally scarred by Michael Myers. <laughs> Two podcasters are very annoying people. <laughs> <laughs> what did I learn from this movie? I think I learned that it's really, really difficult to walk in the footsteps of giants. Trying to recapture the magic is incredibly, incredibly difficult. I think this is a good movie. 
But, you know, if your expectations are that this is going to be another, you know, Halloween, the original in terms of its um, suspense, reset your expectations. Uh, Well, I was going to say what I learned was that a motivated individual can hollow out a human skull in under a minute (laughs) if you want to make a, (laughs) if you want to turn a human skull into a jack-o'-lantern. So I had no idea how long it would take to do that. And now I understand. I learned that I wasn't positive before about the Hayden Field police, but this one that cemented that do not do not go to Hayden Field. You mean Haddonfield? <laughs> Haddonfield? What's it called? <laughs> Haddonfield. Not, not Hayden Field. <laughs> Whatever. It's all right. <laughs> uh, okay, so anything else you guys want to mention in terms of trivia or interesting notes or anything else about the movie before we get to our closing thoughts? I didn't have that much in, in terms of trivia, and this isn't really a big deal, but PJ souls who portrayed Linda in the original film. She has a spoken cameo as Allison's teacher. The only thing is, did anyone actually notice? I certainly didn't. I was, I read about it later and then I went back and I was looking for her, but, and then I realized, Oh, well she's dead. So (laughs) it would be really weird to see Linda show up again. I don't even know her voice well enough to have said like, Oh, that's, that's PJ souls. I did like PJ Souls back in the Stripes era. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she's in Stripes. Yeah. I personally love Annie. I think, uh, who's it, Nancy Loomis? Yeah. I love her in Halloween. I think she's so great. I learned don't don't travel to Haddonfield and expect the police to help you out. How about don't travel to Haddonfield on Halloween? <laughs> that's what I learned. <laughs> that's good, good choice. Halloween might be a good time to take a vacation. <laughs> maybe, maybe go to, go the, to Barbados. Uh, West. Yeah, go, go travel to an island. If you ever see a, a yellow school bus crashed and it on the side of it says anything about psychiatric hospital and there's a bunch <laughs> of people in white gowns wandering around, just keep going. Hit the gas pedal. Yeah. And if a couple of people bounce off your hood, you know, things happen. Can't risk it. All right. Well, let's get to our closing thoughts. Wrap on this film. Marcus, what do you got? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a fun sequel to Halloween. I think there's good tension. I wouldn't say it's quite a scary movie, but I think it's a good tension-filled horror movie. Not really a slasher film that will talk about kills, which my view will completely change. But this one I really liked. I thought they did a great job. Few too many probably nods to the the past with uh, too many of the scenes and shots and things like that. But it was it was good. It was a good movie overall, and I enjoyed it. How about your letter grade? A letter grade, I would give it probably a B plus. Let's say B plus. All right, Colin. I think it is a satisfying sequel that has a good twist at the end. I did like a lot of the callbacks to the original film. Misses out on recapturing what made the original so great, which is all the suspense and the tension. And this is not a scary movie, but I don't want to say it pays fan service, but... Oh, it, pay, it pays it fan does. service, dude. Yeah, I mean, that's a... I don't want to say that. <laughs> what, I want, what I want to say is that, is that it's satisfying from that standpoint Mm -hmm. for me this is definitely the best sequel of all of the sequels Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier but you know obviously halloween is the best film this is the best sequel and then my third pick would actually be uh zombies 2007 reimagining of halloween of the original that's interesting yeah i'd have to see halloween the rest could all just suck oh except for season of the witch it's a little it's a little weird. I want to actually do a podcast on Season of the Witch. I really, that, that, eh, movie, I that movie's fun. It's really, I mean, it's way out there. For my ranking of the movies, I would put, um, the. I'd have probably the same order as Colin. I haven't seen Halloween 2, the, the whatever, 1981 or sequel. 
Uh, so I haven't seen that one in quite a long time. So I'd probably have the same order as Colin. The original Steep Drop-Off, then the 2018 version, and then uh, Zombies version, 2007. I actually think that this is the second best sequel now after seeing it. Because I, I think that, if anything, what this does is it actually makes Halloween 2 a little bit better. Uh, and I think that when you go back and you look at the just the fact of the time when it was shot and the extension of the first film and the fact that, you know, Halloween 2 has a lot of moments of Michael stalking and lurking and it's in a hospital. And I think it's, so I think the suspense and the tension of Halloween 2 is actually more effective in terms of the amount of it that you get versus this movie. This movie would be my second favorite sequel. So I think it's a really good movie. I think it's, I think it's well done. I think that I do really, really appreciate that you know, Gordon Green and McBride, I think they really truly love the source material. So I think in this movie, they were trying to be very respectful, uh, updated a little bit. They definitely went a little bit overboard on the gore for some of the kills, I think. But that just might be sort of expectations of what they think people are looking for today. I think that there is a lot of fan service in terms of referencing and calling out and, you know, identifying. So even things like having the woman in the kitchen be wearing the same outfit as the woman that was in Halloween too. So little things like that, if you are a fan of the franchise, I think that's nice. I think it's fun. It doesn't really take anything away from the movie. So I respect that they did it. Um, I think that the actor who plays Michael Myers, James Jude Courtney. So I think James Jude Courtney does a really good job with the physicality of the shape. You feel that the robotic motions that made him so creepy in the original, a lot of that is replicated pretty effectively here. It's a little bit overdone because it's like he does the neck tilt, a lot uh, versus, you know, it just happened that one time in the original. But all that being said, I, I think this is pretty effective. And I do think that there are several various spe- specific scenes in this movie that are very effective. I think the motion sensor light sequence is great. I think the whole gas station sequence is great. And I think the opening is great. So th- those to me are three very strong scenes in this movie. So overall, like it quite a lot. I think it's done very effectively. And I think it's done very respectively, uh, respectfully to the source material. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a B plus. Did you notice in the scene where um, the family's to dinner at dinner and, and Lori shows up Lori, when Lori's talking about, I don't know, I forget what the actual discussion was, but she actually called Michael the shape in Halloween. That's what they referred to him as the shape. Yeah. That's the shape, I mean, right? That appears in the but script and even the credits. Was that ever in any of the other movies? No. It it just seems it just seemed odd to me that she would call him the shape. I think that's the same as the sheriff saying, "Oh, the babysitter murders." Right? I think they're just doing little Easter eggs for people that are looking for him. Yeah, I was wondering if she actually was saying, "I saw his shape." I saw him, the shape, mom. I wanted to kill him. But I think she actually said the shape. Yeah, it's um, you know, when they're at yeah. Olive Garden, <laughs> she sits down. She find yeah, she sits down. I'm going to test out this <laughs> never-ending breadsticks. <laughs> Keep, them Keep coming. those breadsticks coming. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. We are at the two-and-a-half-hour mark, and since I will be editing this, I'm going to recommend that we go ahead and uh, shut it down. How does that sound? Shut, shut it, it down. down now. Shut it down now. Shut it down. Shut it down now. Diehard reference complete. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed our first of a two-part conversation on the 2018 Halloween and soon-to-follow Halloween Kills. I think we all agree that this is a pretty well-made movie. It's a fun horror movie. It's a strong Halloween sequel. Lots of good stuff here. So if you want to find a movie that you want to have some fun with on Halloween, definitely watch this one as opposed to maybe Halloween Kills. I suppose you could do this one on Halloween Kills back-to-back. That might be an interesting single-long movie, but we will probably have some 
slightly different opinions when we begin discussing Halloween kills, which hopefully you'll be able to tune in and hear very shortly. Otherwise, I guess we'll say this is the Real DMC Podcast, signing off. Bye, everybody. Come on, buddy, come on. Hey, Colin, what's that behind you? It'd be a good um, horror movie, like you doing a podcast in that game. Someone just walked in and <laughs> killed Colin right now. <laughs> yeah, that'd, that'd be no, I, I'm not up for that. I'm not. <laughs> it, it would be quite like shocking though, like because we're like here, you can't see you do anything. I, don't, I mean, Marcus and I, I like Marcus, the, would we carry on with Colin dead? <laughs> like, well, we, we got 20 minutes left. Let's finish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, it'd be like really cool if because i've got these these uh windows right here looking out onto the porch and yeah. so it's it's totally dark in there and it's dark in here but you, if i look over here and then my eyes you know adjust to light and there's this white mask that'd be freaky that would be freaky well every time like when i get up in the middle of the night and i start walking down the hallway to the bathroom the other bedroom's at the end of the hallway and it's totally dark but the door's open but at the end opposite end of that is a white closet door and sometimes it, you could sort of make out its whiteness. And so I always like divert my eyes down. Dude, I would fucking paint that door. <laughs>